Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Copper comes from Arizona. Peaches come from Georgia. And lobsters come from Maine. The wheat fields are the sweet fields of Nebraska. And Kansas gets bonanzas from the grain. Old whiskey comes from old Kentucky. Ain't the country lucky? New Jersey gives us glue. And you, you come from Rhode Island. And little old Rhode Island is famous for you. All right. So, yeah, one of the things I tell people, given my very, very long experience in covering politics, is that from a certain point of view, the highest ranking official that you can kind of yell at is the governor, is your governor of your state, right? I mean, you can't really yell at the president. You can't really yell at the president. You might be taken into custody. Who knows what would happen? Uh, and you, your senator's not even around, right? Your senator's in Washington most of the time. But you can kind of yell at your governor uh, and you can yell at or praise your state representatives, your state senators. These are the people to whom you have access. Uh, and they're also the people who will really determine an awful lot of how your life is lived. I mean, we just found out during the pandemic that it really makes a difference who your governor is. If your governor is Ned Lamont, it's just going to be very different than if your governor is Ralph DeSantis. So uh, so what about that? Did I say Ralph is, is Ron? Right? Why do I want to call him Ralph? Um, so... Um, So with that in mind, we're going to talk today about the significance of state and local politics and why, in fact, they seem to take an even further back seat with each passing cycle uh, than than before. Uh, And we're going to talk a little bit in the middle segment today about the role of the news media, uh, the fact that uh, in some ways the mission of covering state and local politics has been vitiated a little bit just by the just general cuts in in news coverage overall. Although it can and will be argued that other versions of of political coverage have kind of risen to the challenge. Uh, And uh, we'll talk at the end about the so-called big sort, the idea that people then eventually start just moving to places where people are politically more oriented the way they are. But let's sort of begin with that whole idea that, yes, I mean, coming up very soon, a couple of weeks, 36 gubernatorial elections, more than 6,000 state legislative seats are up for grabs to one degree or another. uh, And they are going to shape policy on a lot of issues that you probably care quite a bit about. But as I, you might have heard me say before the news, I'm not sure a lot of you could name your state rep or your state senator uh, or members of your town council because it just it's somewhere it's not in the national conversation. So maybe it's not in the conversations you're having either. Joining us now is Daniel Hopkins, professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of The Increasingly United States, How and Why American Political Behavior Nationalized. So welcome to our conversation. Thanks so much for having me, Colin. So. Let's talk a little bit about this. Your your argument is 
that state and local politics have become effectively nationalized, that the way we talk about national politics bleeds into our perception of more local politics. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the the national politics, politics in Washington, D.C., has become the kind of the sun around which all of the, you know, the political planets um, revolve. And so we're in a world where people care far more about who's um, the president in Washington, D.C. and what Congress is doing than they care what's happening in Hartford or Albany or Harrisburg. So and what's driving that? I mean, what would be the, the, the forces that have created that climate? I think it's the product of multiple forces. I think one of them is the fact that we today have a relatively strong, undifferentiated national American identity. And I think that on top of that, we've also, and you, you alluded to this, and I know you'll, you'll be talking more about it, our media landscape has entirely transformed so that it used to be that waking up here in Philadelphia, I would have been expected to read the Philadelphia Inquirer, maybe the Daily News, that I would consume a lot of local news, news that was targeted to me as a Philadelphia resident. But nowadays, we have seen um, you know, the rise of national and even sometimes international media outlets uh, so that many more people get their news from Fox News, which has no incentive to talk about what's happening in Hartford or what's happening in Danbury. Right. And I don't want to be a declinist about social media all the time, but I think social media plays a big role here. And Pew is always tracking how much of people's news comes increasingly, passes through social media. But social media, you know, is sort of good at two things in this regard. One of them is helping people find one another. So if you have a specific you know, value set or belief set, uh, you could probably find them, find other people like you, particularly on Facebook. But the other thing there that social media is quote unquote good at is just kind of dichotomous arguments. <laughs> and and so if you're in if you're in on Twitter for that, you know, you're probably going to be a lot more interested. You're not going to get into really interesting arguments or conversations or whatever uh, about, you know, even a, like a maybe a congressional race or something. I mean, most of the really fun, interesting arguments are, are going to be about these national themes. Absolutely. And the people that you're going to follow and interact with, they may not share your particular political geography. They may be across congressional district lines, even across state lines. And you know, for, for Twitter, the business model is to show you, and for Facebook, Instagram, et cetera, the business model is to show you things that are going to rile you up, going to move you, going to prompt you to want to engage and stay on the site. But um, from a democratic point of view, a small d democratic point of view, what we want to see is people engaging with their neighbors, with the people with whom they share a political community, share a municipality on the topics of the day. I've recently been engaged in a study of um, a variety of different news sources. And the Philadelphia Inquirer, which is, you know, a, a storied um, local paper here in Philadelphia, sometimes will tweet out stories about Philadelphia. They get no engagement online, right? Because the um, social media doesn't know the political boundaries that we, that, you know, that our system designs and, and focuses on. And so people don't want to talk about the specifics of a city council race with lots of other people who are outside the city or certainly outside that district. 
That is so true. I should say I'm a columnist for Hearst Media here in Connecticut, uh, and I've been a newspaper columnist in Connecticut since 1982. Uh, And, you know, I mean, increasingly, as a content creator, if you create content about this stuff, yeah, you'd like to see people talk about it and comment heavily on it. But I think that's less and less likely to occur. And so some of the kind of countervailing force, I think, arises from a sense that particularly in this era where the margins uh, in each chamber uh, in Washington are getting narrower, that these are high stakes races, that the reason that people would care about Walker versus Warnock or in your case, in your backyard, uh, Oz versus Fetterman, uh, you know, is not simply because these races are colorful and interesting, although they are, but also because whoever wins those races and a whole bunch of other swing state races or key races, uh, that's that that party is going to have a tremendous uh, amount of control over the national dialogue. And I don't know, what's your reaction? I mean, people aren't wrong about that. No, they're entirely right. And you can see this, too, in if you look at campaign uh, fundraising, where as late as 1992, two thirds of all the money that candidates for the Senate and the House were raising um, came from within the state that they wanted to represent. Um, but, but then by 2012, the ratio had been reversed. And now it's likely that even more than two thirds of the money uh, in a given congressional or Senate race is coming from outside of that state. And so this creates a kind of disconnect between where the donors are and where the voters are. And it's ironic because as you were, as you were, you know, you were exactly saying, the outcome of the Georgia Senate race and the Pennsylvania Senate race, uh, you know, the Nevada Senate race, these are going to shape the policies that we all live in and live under, whether we are in Connecticut or Pennsylvania. And I'm in some sense fortunate as a Pennsylvania voter in that I routinely can vote in meaningful federal elections as a, you know, Pennsylvania is kind of the, the ultimate swing state. Um, but you are entirely right that as citizens, we all have a stake in control of national institutions. And as we see control of national institutions matter more and more, um, that's where the attention has gone. That's where the fundraising dollars have gone. And here in Pennsylvania, we frequently see vol- campaign volunteers from other states who come to our state because this is where they think they can make a difference to what they care about, which is national control. So. There's so much to say about this, but I, 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 there are all kinds of sort of subtle uh, impacts of this or subtle forms of fallout from this. And I'll give an example and maybe you can react to it. So here in Connecticut, the tippiest, purplest uh, congressional district is the fifth. Uh, the fifth uh, is the one that can kind of slice either way. And they have right now kind of a, a good example of a race in the fifth where the Democratic incumbent, Johanna Hayes, came in with AOC and the rest of her squad, but she's not like that. She's tracks much more to the cent- center than those uh, uh, those members of Congress do. And her opponent, a guy named George Logan, is, you know, I think a pretty moderate Republican. He's not a Trumpy guy. Uh, he's a uh, African-American Republican who, among other things, has been for a long time the front man in a Jimi Hendrix tribute band. And he apparently can really sort of get those Hendrix guitar solos off and stuff. So if I were living in the fifth, which I'm not, I would I might be thinking, 
You know, it would be good if Kevin McCarthy didn't always have to talk to somebody about Jewish space lasers. You know, it would be good if Kevin McCarthy talked to George Logan instead, you know, and and dealt with people who were less crazy overall than a lot of the members of his caucus. Maybe I'll vote for George Logan, except that another part of me would be saying, no, 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 you can't do that, even though George seems like a pretty nice guy. Um, you know, because you can't augment uh, the size of McCarthy's caucus. And, and to me, in a way, that's a part of what you've been writing about, that you can't even think about that race. I mean, it's hard enough to think about it locally. You can't even think about it like, well, maybe maybe just this one time I'll vote for a Republican. Absolutely. And one of the things that we see when we look at the data is that the set of people who reliably split their tickets has been declining. And the the relationship between how a county votes for, say, president and how it votes for governor, even when, you know, gubernatorial elections, they don't decide national, you know, they have nothing to do with national control of Congress. And yet even so, we've seen in recent years, um, places and voters are less and less likely to split their tickets and more and more likely to stick with their overall partisanship, even when it comes to races um, say for for governor. So, um, in in the not too distant past, there were a good number of New England states and in um, and states throughout the country that maybe were reliably Democratic, but had Republican governors. Right, I re- remember Governor Rolland in Connecticut. Um, and these obviously these you know cross party governors still exist. Charlie Baker is the governor you know just to your north mm-hmm. in Massachusetts, but at the same time. Um, they face, they face an increasingly uphill struggle. And there are fewer and fewer of them. If we look at states where the state votes for the same party for president and then for governor, um, that number has been rising steadily to the point that you can, you can count on one or maybe two hands um, governors who are elected in a state whose partisanship ten, tends in the opposite direction. Right. I, I would say, say just for the in Connecticut, Connecticut's a little bit like Massachusetts that way. I mean, our gubernatorial races are usually very, very close in a way that our U.S. Senate races are not. But that, I think, sort of, you know, in fact, builds on, on your essential point. So we should say a little bit about, you know, what this translates to in the realm of policy. Um, actually, maybe since we're going to talk about that, it, it, you know, one office that I think was pretty unsexy and not particularly glamorized uh, in an awful lot of states, maybe all 50 of them, was Secretary of State. You know, I mean, if you're a political junkie, you know a lot about the Secretary of State. You know what they do. Um, but, you know, in most places, it's kind of part of a ticket, right? It's it's the under ticket. So probably whoever you vote for for governor is who you're going to vote for for Secretary of State. But we've just seen o- over the last, you know, two or three years, the importance of who is Secretary of State and how that person interprets his or her job. Uh, and so you'd think that maybe, you know, it would be possible to to mobilize people about those races. And I get the feeling that in a very specific anyway, a very specific sense anyway, that did happen. I mean, it certainly will be interesting to look at, um, say, places like the Michigan or Arizona or Nevada Secretary of State's races, places where Secretary of State's are independently elected, because it's possible that there will be some daylight uh, in how people vote, precisely because these roles have suddenly become nationalized. They suddenly have taken on a meaning in national politics. And it's, it's you know, the, the vibrant debates of national politics that infuse a lot of our state and local politics with meaning. And that's, that's part of the danger of a nationalized system. It's not that people 
don't care about state and local politics. It's that they view state and local politics through the lens of what's happening nationally. And you're entirely right that in the wake of um, lies about the integrity of the 2020 election, there is newfound attention to secretary of state's races. And so we'll be in a position where we will, we will, yeah, we will see if voters um, display some increased awareness of these positions and you know, maybe deviate from from party loyalties because these races are suddenly getting some attention. I wonder if also that uh, if another precipitate uh, of this of what we're talking about is a kind of um, fascination with not that this would be a new phenomenon, but maybe a growing fascination with hot button topics. So you know, obviously, uh, reproductive rights, abortion choice, all that kind of stuff has become. It's always been a tripwire, but now it's really, really, really front burner in this uh, in this climate. And I think access to voting and stuff like that is is obviously more a more heated question uh, these days. And I mean, in a way. Like governors have a less sexy job for the most part. They're just trying to make a big, huge bureaucracy run. <laughs> and they have a chance to do kind of an overlay of policy onto that. But the administrative job is is so big that, you know, I, I think it's hard to be super ideological. And I'm kind of wondering about that, too, whether we've started because of how Fox and CNN and MSNBC cover the news and what happens in social media, we think only in terms of these kind of stark, visceral choices that seem to you know really bother us a lot. It's a great point. And I think that partly a nationalized politics is going to be a, a politics that's heavy on the sorts of symbolic issues that you're mentioning that are issues that people can quickly come to a view on and issues that resonate nationwide. You know, if you want to rile people up, if you want to get viewers um, or listeners uh, and you want to build a political base across the country, you need to find an issue that is going to resonate um, and not some, you know, not a state specific question about should there be wolf hunting in the Rocky Mountain North or should there be more charter schools in Philadelphia? You need to find an issue that is that is straightforward and simplistic. And so you might think about questions of, you know, whether transgendered people should use, you know, this or that bathroom. Um, these are questions that though they're um, they were not front burner policy questions several years ago. Um, they're symbolic questions. They people can quickly relate to them, and they can quickly sort us into into two sides. And I think that one of the impacts of a nationalized politics is we spend a lot of time on symbolic questions. Some of which say, you know, do football players stand for the national anthem? They don't even have a policy question to them. <laughs> and part of what we've seen in this highly nationalized environment is um, less and less state-specific voting where people say, hey, you know, I like how my governor is performing, even though my governor shares a party with, with Washington, D.C. We see more and more party-line voting, you know, for state houses. Right. So, I mean, we'd like, I think, things to be a little bit different, maybe a little bit more nuanced. Um, I think there's some real questions about how we get there in this environment. But I know one thing that you've given some thought to a little bit earlier, we were talking about the national or at least sort of um, extra state money that comes intrastate uh, for advertising and races and stuff like that. Uh, obviously, if there are super PACs and 
national Senate campaigns and stuff like that that uh, that come in and, and make all kinds of inflammatory ads. They're just pouring gasoline on this fire. But post Citizens United, is there a lot that anybody can do about that? Uh, yes, you could certainly imagine. And and campaign finance law varies depending on we're talk whether we're talking about you know local or state or federal elections. Mm-hmm. Um, but there certainly is still leeway within the campaign finance system for, for instance, um, incentive programs that match donations from within one's own constituency, right? right. And um, and you could imagine that if if politicians had less of an incentive to go to New York or Dallas to raise money and more of an incentive to raise money locally, if those dollars that were raised locally could do more for them or they could raise more of them, um, that might reorient their attention a little bit locally. I also think that um, the federal government has at its disposal a wide range of regulations about, say, how much we charge for political advertisements or, you know, you mentioned social media earlier. You could imagine a, a social media regulatory change in which social media um, uh, companies provided some level of state and local news. And, um, you know, we in earlier eras, that was part of the package that mm-hmm. local TV broadcasters had to provide some local news. And we could we could imagine a social media regulatory scheme that did something like that. But I do. I think that nationalization is here to stay. But I think that there are things we can do on the margin to encourage a, a deliberative state and local media environment, to be sure. Right. That unmarked van pulling up outside your office right now is a Facebook death squad. Uh, you just said social media regulatory and, you know, they're just, that's not good. You're going to be in a lot of trouble. So, um, you know, I, I, we're about to segue into a segment specifically about the news media, but obviously the news media, as we've been saying straight along during this conversation, is a major player in all of this. And I don't know if there's anything that you see in terms of, of a solution uh, to the way that that political news media cover things or, or whether we need different players and stakeholders. I do think that, that effective social media regulation, I mean, we, for decades, we benefited from the happy coincidence that um, local newspapers could get a lot of revenue from advertising and that their boundaries were not always perfectly matching political boundaries, but that there was, you know, in Western Pennsylvania or here in Southeastern Pennsylvania, there was a paper that had an economic incentive to cover the information that was relevant to Philadelphia and to Southeastern Pennsylvania. And the the social media landscape, um, the rise of, um, you know, online newspapers mean that people would rather read the New York Times online then engage with their local news. And I think that um, this is partly a demand-based problem in that as citizens are exposed to, you know, vibrant, compelling national news, local news kind of pales to some degree by comparison. may seem parochial or or less interesting. And it's certainly not what their friends from other places are talking about online. So I think that in part we have to recognize that it's a demand-based problem as well as a supply-based problem. And I think we need to be creative about the way that we regulate social media um, and indeed the way that we uh, encourage high-quality local journalism to make sure that there are reporters in every state and in every city who are um, providing important information. Because politicians certainly know when they're not getting phone calls from local reporters asking them about this pot of money or that policy. 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, well, we are going to make that transition now and talk very specifically uh, about the news media and how it looks these days. Daniel Hopkins, professor of political science at UPenn and the author of The Increasingly United States, How and Why American Political Behavior Nationalized. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Sometimes when the grass is blown by the breeze, there's a faraway look in the leaves of the trees. A memory returns, heartbreakingly clear, of a place I call home, your state's name here. No sky could be deeper, no river so clear, as back in the meadows of your state's name here. I'm gonna go back, although I don't know when, there's no other place like your state's name again. Your state's name here, oh, again, what a state. I have not been back since a reasonable date where the asphalt grows soft in July every year. In the warm summer mornings of your state's name here. So, we are talking today about state and local politics and how they seem to take a back seat even more than heretofore. Uh, they take a back seat to national politics. I do want to say that in terms of our show, one of the things that we very consciously decided to do during this election season is episodes like this. Uh, we we defer to our neighbors at where we live and Lucy uh, for some of the candidate interviews and stuff like that. And the station itself is sponsoring and hosting debates. But we sort of thought maybe our job would be to look at some of these other, you know, somewhat more abstract questions like what is centrism and things like that. So that's what we're doing today. And yes, it's time to talk about the news media. To do that is uh, an old friend of mine, Paul Bass, uh, editor of the New Haven Independent, uh, and also uh, Megan Rubido, uh, associate professor in the Levin School of Urban Affairs at Cleveland State University. So... 
Where to begin? So, Paul, you know, I mean, we could actually see this in our own profession. Um, We could see there's, for example, a press room of the state capitol where I spent a certain amount of the late 70s and early 80s uh, and and have dropped in and out since then. And, I mean, that press room is depopulated, right, in a way that's unmistakable. I mean, we're going to talk about some of the creative stuff that people like you have done, but we we have to begin by acknowledging that the so-called legacy media is just taking a huge body blow or series of them. Fair? Fair, but I would argue that that's a good thing for state political reporting. Say why? Because there was a herd mentality. So we're, of course, that there are a lot (laughs) fewer reporters than there used to be. And that, um, thankfully, the corporate media of the, that was buying up local papers and creating monopolies in the late 1990s with complete contempt for its readers are seeing seeing its business model fall apart. But I think the decline and not decline of state political reporting is more complex. This is my take, Colin. Mm-hmm. So there aren't as many, there are about a tenth as many reporters jumping to every press conference with the governor and writing the same story 20 times. I would actually argue that day-to-day coverage of the campaign and state government is better than any time I've seen it in since the 80s. I'll tell you why. I get like three or four choices of really good coverage of the main stuff happening in the state. The um, Christine Stewart at News Junkie, Mark Pasniokas at The Mirror, um, Ken Dixon, and then great, great columns by Dan Haar on the campaign and what's happening every day. And where I see a lack with difference with those bodies gone is that you don't have as many local reporters at the state house looking at how state government and politics affect their local communities. And that is important. And, you know, I know the independence of local nonprofit um, daily, I don't see a need to replicate with another reporter what Christine and Ken and, and Dan and Mark are doing. But when we did have money one year to send a reporter to the Capitol, there were 20 bills that mattered a lot to New Haven. And we were able to look at the progress of those bills, the arguments for and against them and keep a scorecard. So I do think that the decline is a little more nuanced than that. And also, I think information is more available in this race. So people are saying, yeah, I haven't really found out what Cynthia Jennings stands for as the independent party candidate for secretary of state. But the truth is, she has made the circuit in more in-depth conversation than you used to get with the old corporate print media. So for instance, right before the show, I was on air at our very small local uh, radio station with Dom Rapini, the, the Republican candidate for Secretary of State. Yesterday, Stephanie Thomas spent an hour talking about the issues. Um, Cynthia Jennings came in before that. And while not a lot of people see that, once again, before Election Day takes place, we'll have about 30 hours worth of video with everybody running for state and regional office, answering serious questions and links to stories, so that if you want to know how to cast your vote, it might be better than when you used to get the legal women voters insert to your print paper with listing what their party is without really looking close at what they look at and the same herd corporate story that was written about the race in every newspaper in town. So I agree that there are challenges and it is important the research that's being done about the decline of reporters numerically from mainstream corporate news outlets, but I'm not sure that on balance it's a loss. I would argue that things are better than they were in most ways. We have a little bit of a challenge for the local reporting up at the Capitol, and that will only keep getting better. 
So I want to go to uh, Megan Rubidon now and see how well that tracks nationally. I mean, Paul is absolutely right. We have his incredibly fine news operation at the New Haven Independent. And the, yeah. the, the CT Mirror is terrific. And CT News Junkie, those are both nonprofits. Uh, those are, are also terrific. I completely agree and share Paul's admiration. Danny Har, I'm not so sure about. Uh, I'm, just, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Making fun of Danny is like a Connecticut State Park uh, sport. So, but, but Megan, I'm kind of wondering, you know, are we extremely fortunate? Here in Connecticut, to have three extremely well-run nonprofit independent news operations, or is that pretty much the way things are going nationwide? So I don't think that um, that is an anomaly, right? I don't think you're um, alone in that, but I do think you're lucky. So it's it's sort of both, right? There's the the landscape of um, of state and local news coverage is in such flux right throughout the country so that some cities some states are seeing you know incredibly robust successful um independent startups um you know and i think that that will continue right so so it might be a little bit unique right now where you are um in connecticut to have such uh, fantastic state level coverage that that you know as paul said is is an improvement over the old model the legacy media um but I don't think that, you know, that every state or every city uh, has the luxury of that quality of coverage at this stage. So I'm I'm optimistic that that what Paul is describing uh, is currently in the process of replicating. <laughs> and I think uh, I think that my biggest concern is what Paul identified. Right. Is that while there's high quality state government coverage, state level, right, uh, governor's uh, races for for statewide office, like the governor, right? There is a lot less localized coverage of state policy, state turn of the screw policymaking and program administration, the kinds of stories that that legacy media, right? So so that you'd read about in your newspaper um, 10 or 15 years ago or 20 years ago when there were dedicated state house reporters for most city newspapers. Um, you can't find them now, right? And that is the kind of information that voters use to hold state officials accountable. Uh, so that's that remains my my concern and something that I think um, the shifting landscape of news media still needs to to come up to 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 face that challenge. So, um, Paul, I want to just come back to you and and maybe not exactly push back, but. Um, so, because you're absolutely right that for a long time, just kind of by default, as opposed to by initiative, newspapers tended to send a certain group of people up to cover the state capitol. And, and, you know, I was one of those people. Um, and so the current would, the Hartford Current would maintain maybe three people. We all had desks there in the newsroom, uh, and the New Haven Register would do something kind of similar and so forth. Uh, and so there were kind of a lot of people up there. And, and I guess, one of the things that I would say is when you have that, yeah, you do have some of the pack journalism that you're describing, but you also have, I don't know, me sitting in the general law committee, uh, watching my life, you know, trickle away from me, but also just sort of aware of stuff that I wouldn't be aware of any other way. That when you do staff, say, a state legislature, you know, and you do have reporters attending committee hearings and stuff like that, you're just going to find out stuff that you, there's no other way to find out. But but yeah, tell, react to that for me, Paul. I, I agree completely with you that it's always better to have human beings in person watching government anything else to learn. 
And I, by the way, I want to be clear, I was not criticizing any of the reporters who were there. There were terrific reporters, including you, Colin. And it was more that I, I, I didn't think we had what um, was just being discussed with Meg about the local reporter. I, didn't, I wasn't getting the local coverage from the local reporters at the Capitol about their local legislators for the most part. So I think in person matters a lot, but I don't think it was directed in a way that accomplished what you were saying at those great committee hearings where you do find out stuff. The one year I did have the money to send someone, we found out incredible stuff at committee hearings that had so much to do with, with what happened on the ground here. So I agree with that. And I think one thing that Megan, you and I were maybe leaving out is that there's also all sorts of new information that isn't technically journalism, but it's pretty good information that's available now that didn't used to be there that you could find out. There are groups that monitor government, whether it's looking at public financing or, or how they spend money or advocacy groups that you know are advocacy groups and how they, on all sides of an issue, look at, a, at a, um, the records of politicians. And there are databases if you want to get a little more adventurous on your own. So I actually think there's a lot more available information about government than there was. And it's not even all hard to get. And even the fact that every politician now in office holder is a news outlet, right? So we used to compete with other media to break stories about New Haven. Now we compete with the mayor's office. How much can we tell them in advance we're doing a story before they'll try to put their spin out because they have all their own distribution networks? It's actually, I think, not a bad thing that politicians and companies put out their own propaganda as long as you know how to read it, because there's a lot of good information there, including immediately when streets are going to be closed in a storm, to finding out what policy initiatives they're doing from their perspective. So I think there's a lot more good information out there. I think it's a moment of opportunity. And if I believed what you said, Colin, that most reporters were, were trained and led and rewarded for sitting through those committee meetings and finding that really interesting nugget that wasn't the conventional pack story of the day, it would be said that that's gone. And we all saw different things in our days. I don't believe that was ever there. I think there's more opportunity to find that stuff out more. And now listening to Meg, I was thinking we should just get all the local reporters and nonprofits to get foundations to give us money to send up our own reporters and do it in a new way. All right. So, Megan, we need to talk a little bit about your research because your research shows a correlative and possibly causational link between the number of reporters covering state and local politics and political engagement among the citizenry. So tell us more about that. Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll note first that the research I've done so far has focused specifically on local government and on local elections, but um, there is a lot of good w work that's been out um, and a lot of work that I'm doing now that looks also at state government. So the existing work that um, that I have with my, my co-author um, shows that when newspapers cut staff, which um, they have done dramatically over the, the last 20 years, um, the biggest, you know, the sharp start of the decline starts around 2008, 2009. And over the course of the period that follows, we lose about half of newsrooms on average, right? Half of the people um, staffing the newsrooms. And as those cuts occur, we see a relationship between the staff cut, the, the sort of severity of the staff cut, and the competition of local government races, particularly for may, uh, particularly in mayoral races. So we see mayors facing fewer challengers, right? More mayors are, are running unopposed, um, winning by larger margins. Um, and we also see some suggestive evidence that um, turnout in these local races also suffers, is, is lower when the news cuts have been more dramatic, the new staff cuts. 
Um, so these are obviously, these are concerning things, right? Because these are sort of central tenets of the quality of local democracy. You have to have an engaged, active public to uh, to hold local government officials accountable. And the the newer research uh, would indicate, right, that uh, that this is all this also holds for state government, and that it is causally related to a decline in actual coverage. So that as we've lost local news reporters at um, newspapers, we are seeing less information about local government and state government um, available at the local level. I mean, so, I, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, I just I would just say that right. This again, I I think what Paul was saying. You know, I, I I do have a different perspective, right? It when I worked for so I worked for the Syracuse Post Standard for about six years as a city hall reporter. Um, for for my my last job there was uh, my last beat. Oh God, the days of the beat, right? Was uh, city hall. But by the time I left, right, I was covering city hall, county government, the the Syracuse City School District, and like pinch hitting on cops, like covering police once a week, you know. Um, and this was. When my um, colleagues and I did some interviews with newspaper reporters who were still at newspapers, they described this kind of frustration with this, right? This kind of piling on of duties that made it really hard for them to develop the kinds of relationships and um, to dedicate the kind of time to observe these really um, important stories that would not be uncovered otherwise. So I, and it's all, it's not all like romanticized nostalgia. There were lot, there were major flaws in the old system, right? And I think that there is an opportunity um, in the new media landscape and then in the new world of independence and foundation funded um, journalism and projects like Paul mentioned, like the documenters project where, where people are going to public meetings and, and documenting them for pay, right? Uh, in the place of newspaper reporters who used to be there. Um, that there is hope that we can not only um, provide that information that used to be there, but do it in a better way. Do it in a way that say is um, more, fo- you know, more attuned to concerns of social equity. We know that newspapers and legacy medias were overwhelmingly white, right, and and privileged in their in their staffs in their staffing. So you know, there's room for improvement, and I think that there is optimism that it can be attained. Well, also, Megan, you can't go by Paul. Paul's extremely smart, and he also has the most highly developed super ego in all of Connecticut journalism. And he's a very <laughs> conscientious person. If everybody acted the way Paul did, we wouldn't have any problems. But Paul, I, I do want to talk about one last thing here, and I think it's an thank important. Thank you for that, by the way. It's not true, but thank you. <laughs> no, it is. It actually is true. I mean, it pains me to say it, but it is true. So, no, you know, and that is. And back when I was on WTIC and I had like a lot of politicians like flowing in and out on kind of a casual basis uh, uh, to my studio, one thing that people would occasionally say to me is they'd say, you make it feel real to me that I live here. And and I think that's something that New Haven Independent does too is, you know, increasingly people don't really live anywhere. They're on social media five, yeah. <laughs> five hours a day. They're looking at their phones. Uh, they're plugged into national media on a very heavy level and they're plugged into Netflix on a different level. And, and they don't really live anywhere. Anywhere. And, and it seems to me that part of your mission is to say, oh, yeah, no, you actually do live someplace. It's called New Haven. Here's what New Haven is like. I agree with that. And thank you for that. And by the way, I respect so much the research Meg and some others like Mr. Starr have done on this subject and definitely revealing good problems. I'm skeptical about cause and effect and how you measure involvement. Like you just noted a whole lot of trends why people don't run for office or looking more at national issues. 
again, the amount of information you get now about your zoning board and you can watch the council meetings and you can listen, you can watch a recorded YouTube of all the meetings. The information is really available. And again, without discounting some of the problems about you don't fill a place because the newspaper's not there and the great work you did, Colin, I actually think there's more podcasting going on, independent podcasting, even social media, which has so many bad effects of getting bad information. There's also a lot of great information that goes immediately out that whether the school board puts it out itself or people are critical of the school board put it out and leak memos. I, I think we're drowning in local government information that we never used to have. And sometimes, you know, we don't like the result, you know, the parents' rights movement based on information and freaking out people about sexuality or whatever. That's a lot of engagement. And I've been rethinking the question of democracy since starting this project about whether we measure engagement and involvement in a successful democracy by the absolute numbers of people who participate or by the absolute number of people who have access to good information and access to be able to participate and then choose to. And if they don't, is that a fault of a lack of media or the rules? Or is it the fault of people who are engaged in civic and public life failing to inspire people enough to be involved? It doesn't have to be one or the other, though. All right, we have to stop here. Paul Bass is editor of the New Haven Independent. Megan Rubideau, associate professor in the Levin School of Urban Affairs at Cleveland State University. We got to go. We'll come back and talk about the big sort on the other side. All right. Uh, special thanks here to our uh, technical producer today. That's Dylan Rays. Lily Tyson, the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, is the producer of this episode. So uh, I sort of screwed up the clock. We don't have as much time as this deserves. But Ryan Enos is with us, professor of government uh, and the director for the Center of American Political Studies at Harvard University. Uh, I, I'm not telling people anything that they don't know. But I mean, uh, Ryan, to a certain degree, maybe people don't realize the how much relocation is going on, how much uh, coalescing is going on uh, so that people are increasingly surrounded by other people who feel politically the way that they do. Uh, just say a little bit more to kind of characterize that phenomenon. Yeah, that's right, Colin. It, it is the case that from what we can tell from our research that Americans are increasingly in these sort of partisan bubbles that you, you can put a lot of numbers on this um, that can make it sound pretty extreme. And in some cases it is. So, for example, your modal Democrat, so your typical Democrat out there lives with um, exposure in their daily lives to almost zero Republicans. So only about, let's say they saw 100 people in their daily lives, only about five of those would would be Republicans. And if we think of an analogy, for example, of racial segregation, most Democrats and most Republicans live in in a level of segregation from people from the other political party that would be considered extreme levels of segregation if it was racial segregation. So people aren't being exposed to people um, from the other party a lot. And it has something, it is something that we've seen increase over time. The only caution I would give, just to put a little caution out there, is one of the things you said is that there's a lot of relocation going on. And, and that's something we're not really clear on. And as, But as far as we can tell, a lot of this phenomenon is not because people are picking up and moving, per se. Some people certainly are. But it's not that people are picking up and moving to get away from people in another party. It has a lot more to do with the parties resorting in place, if you will, people changing their parties and people coming into parties and things like that. 
But there is some movement, too. And I mean, when I get the sense also that COVID may have even slightly accelerated that movement. People maybe not super comfortable with either mask mandates or the lack of mask mandates, just for example. I mean, people want to live in places where they're they're kind of comfortable with the polity of the place. Yeah, I mean, there is no doubt there there is some movement. And and like a lot of things, it's just tricky figuring out the cause of it. it. It seems to be, as far as we can tell, and other people can tell that research this, that there's not a lot of people out there that explicitly are going to say, I'm going to move where there's more people politically like me. Mm-hmm. Because most people, you know, we always have to remind ourselves, those of us that study politics and do shows on it and things like that, are that most people don't care about politics as much as we do. It's sort of a, an afterthought. But But that's not to say, of course, that people don't that they don't sort, they don't move around lifestyles that are correlated with politics. So they might want to be around people that are like them on dimensions of what type of house they want to live in, what kind of car they want to drive, what kind of jobs they have, things like that. And those things increasingly are correlated with politics. And so for the people that can sort on those issues, and not everybody can, but for the people that can, yeah, they're going to move on something that is at least correlated with politics, and that can be contributing to this phenomenon. I wonder also, I mean, politics and culture are not unrelated to one another. So if you're living in a very red place, there's going to be more Cracker Barrel, less Whole Foods. There's going to be more beer softball, less yoga, and, and vice versa. And I wonder about that, too, where you start to have finely grained cultural differences that have some kind of linkage to the politics of a place. Yeah, there, there's no doubt. And, and, and that's going to contribute to things like this. You know, the caution, and we always give these cautions, and some people get sick of hearing me say it, (laughs) is that that those kinds of cultural differences exist for a a certain portion of the population. You know, if you go to, um, if you go below a certain income level in this country, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat or Republican, you're probably shopping at Walmart. And, And that is something that is your politics aren't going to be reflected in what you consume, for example. But for some people, it are, it is. And when people have the income to make that choice, um, they're going to they're going to choose to consume things that that reflect their um, reflect their politics, and they might choose to live near those things. And this can go all the way from sports to the restaurants people eat at, to the places they buy the groceries, to the cars they drive. All those things can reflect our politics and help people to or contribute to people sorting into places. This is probably the last question. It's definitely the last question because we're out of time. But, you know, I want to go back to the the kind of numbers you were starting out with at the beginning. It seems to me that one of the other dangers here is if you don't see people from the opposite political persuasion, then it's harder to humanize them, right? They start to become these kind of cardboard figures who represent this kind of crude summary uh, of the political party that they belong to. Yeah, of course. And this is something, this is the concern, and we don't know for sure. But one thing we know about segregation generally is it does allow you to dehumanize people and it hurts the way people get along and it hurts the ways they can come together to make a society successful. And if that same thing applies to Democrats and Republicans being separated from each other, that is something we should really be concerned about for American democracy. Absolutely. Well, we have to stop there, but I wish there were more time. Uh, Thanks to Ryan Enos, professor of government and the director of the Center for American Political Studies uh, at Harvard University. Thanks to everyone who listened today. Thanks to everybody who worked on the show. Minnows come from Minnesota. Coats come from Dakota. But why should you be blue? For you